I'm Amy Sandler, the host of the Radical Candor Podcast. And with this episode, we're kicking off a series of radically candid conversations. We are so honored to debut this series by introducing you to Dr. A. Breeze Harper. She's a diversity and inclusion strategist, an anti-racism scholar, and a facilitator. Dr. Harper and Kim Scott help us examine why did it take COVID-19 to expose for so many of us the virus of systemic racism? And we'll be radically candid, even though everyone has a role to play in being anti-racist, this mindset is least likely to be practiced by most white people in the United States, while a majority of Black, Indigenous, and people of color are already highly aware of the importance of framing anti-racism as a workplace practice. So this podcast is for those of us, including me and our Radical Candor core team, who have not yet been leading with an anti-racist mindset. Though, of course, everyone is invited to listen. It is my great honor to introduce Dr. Breeze Harper. I saw a talk that you did in 2016 that that really moved me about how to be anti-racist in the workplace. And, uh, And your talk was one of the best examples of radical candor I've ever seen because you started with so much love for everyone in the audience and yet you did not pull your punches when using language that people are often afraid of. So I admire that. I love that about you. And I'd love it if if you could talk a little bit about uh, some of the things you said in that talk in 2016, which seem even more relevant today than they did in 2016, at least to me, probably because I was insufficiently aware of what was going on in the world. Kim, thank you very much for taking the time to look at that video. I believe that's probably the most viewed video that I have on my YouTube channel. And, um, you know, to talk about this talk, I would like to give you some background. I was actually scared to give this talk. Uh, Over the past 15 years, I've done a lot of lectures and workshops. And this one in particular, I was invited to what I knew would be an overwhelmingly white community. And I wasn't sure at the time if I was ready to start talking about this concept of white fragility um, and having mostly well-intended white people reflect on what it means to, even though you're not overtly racist, that you benefit from a systemically racist country and a past that's embedded in 500 years of, of a white racial caste system. So I almost canceled, and my brother, who's my twin, talk to me about what my fears were. Basically, despite my credentials and the books I've written about how systemic racism operates, I'm, I'm just really scared to go in the space for many reasons, and I'm not sure what I'm scared of. And my brother's specialty is getting people to reach their optimal performance through um, types of therapies that dig into the fact that we are controlled, our decisions most of the time are controlled by fears and trauma. So we really talked about that. And, you know, I told him what my fears were and my safety. I was pregnant at the time as well with my fourth. And he basically concluded that you can't really transform yourself unless you face these fears, of course, with reason, you know, don't put yourself in a place where you're actually physically unsafe. But, you know, reminding me that 
uh, I almost did not do this talk because I had fears and, you know, traumas related to just experiencing um, what George Yancey has in a great book that came out in 2018 called Backlash, what um, happens when we talk honestly about race in America. And um, he had written a letter, Dear White America, I think it was in the Washington Post, and he just wanted most of white America to understand that whether they are overtly racist or not, that we live in a systemically racist society and blah, blah, blah. But the, the, the letter of love was met with such vitriol and rage. And he actually took, I mean, there were like over 2,000 comments. They were so disgusting. He's a philosopher at Emory, and he's one of the few black philosophers. And he turned those letters into a book to really wow. show... But he really dug deep into it because he's this amazing philosopher and what it did to him. So, you know, that type of backlash that I was experiencing, not to that degree, but if you look at some of the comments even on the video that you watch, half of them are quite disgusting. So this is before, you know, I even gave the talk and went there. But I'm talking to my brother about this. And, you know, he concluded that this would be really important for you to go to and uh, that in order to transform and constantly transform to a human that's evolving toward at least what you want to do, which is evolving toward the arch of justice, you need to actually go and confront those fears. And then you'll probably realize once you go through it, it was some narrative that you had made up in your head. I didn't even give the talk that I thought I would give. And I decided instead of being highly theoretical academic Dr. Breeze Harper, I'm going to be more authentically myself and use my emotions, not so much focus on the brain work, but how can I interpret all that theory, all that history, all those concepts into empathetic storytelling and give it as a gift of love and non-judgment. And it was kind of talking to my brother to understand, he's like, that's the point of what you do is to do it and get people to understand that no one chooses how to be born into a particular type of system in which there are hierarchies of power, and especially in the United States, based along race, class, and gender. And your job is to kind of go through and understand those fears. So when I gave that talk, I was what I would usually say unapologetically black, <laughs> really expressing to the audience you know, there is no monolithic way of being black. However, there is a theme throughout the last 500 years that most of us who identify as black, experience life as black in the United States, have been affected by systemic racism to, you know, all different levels, whether it's an individual person who's decided that they're going to be a Nazi and call you the N-word or threaten your family, uh, to people who don't quite understand that when they have a little bit of information, especially if they're people like political leaders, mostly with power, and they mostly, most of them, those in power are white, mostly white men, that that particular history of being racialized as a white man, if you don't understand other minoritized racial communities, histories of systemic racism and oppression, you may in fact vote on or create policies that have good intentions but have negative consequences and outcomes on those communities. So that's how I wanted to talk about these things at that talk. And, and I really want to frame this in love because if you develop a relationship with someone, whether it's a friend or family member or lover, this concept of unconditional love is that you're not going to coddle someone's feelings. So you don't, you know, I don't want to hurt your feelings. True love means that if I witness that you are doing something, though you have good intentions, that is going to hurt yourself and others, 
I want to point that out to you. And I want to show that to you because we live in a society that's this racial caste system. So any type of caste system from jump, as soon as you're born into it, you're fragmented as a human being. So how can I help you become wholly human again and reach that potential? And for most of us, it's hard to do that when you don't have people that are compassionately urging you to take accountability for things that have happened, even if they were out of ignorance. So that's what I wanted to do. And that's how I want to talk about this concept of systemic racism, especially during this time, which is now June, 2020. And we're witnessing protests, you know, though there's been this tradition of many minoritized racialized communities protesting in various forms for decades, but the protests that we see on the streets, you know, that they're witnessing in this. And there are so many white identified Americans um, who really want to learn, like, what is racism? How can I be anti-racist? So I think, like you were saying, the, the talk that I gave, which is called Uprooting White Fragility, I think that is very timely, and I'm hoping to continue framing the way I do this work uh, with, you know, it's kind of hard love, but un- unconditional love, uh, non-judgment, and to urge people to really reflect on what fears and traumas have you had around being racialized, and are you even aware that as a white person you have a race, you are racialized, because that's traumatic. It's variously, it shows up differently, um, different communities and how it's affected, but we're all traumatized by it. And for a lot of white people, um, if you acquaint yourself with the anthology Combined Destinies, it's a great anthology that came out, I think about four years ago, around 2016, where it unpacks the feelings, the emotions, the grieving process that many white people from, it was mostly the baby boom uh, generation, baby boomer generation, they talked about the trauma of growing up in a household, whether it was overtly racist or, you know, we're, we're a liberal white family, we don't see color, which is also problematic. And talking about the trauma that's sectioned off in a way that when we go through trauma or there's shock or something happens or where we can't accept it, you know, grief and denial and anger, it goes through that, the, the, the chapters are sectioned off that way and that the, the, the proper pattern of how we digest what's happening. And at the end, of course, um, more optimistic resolutions and action plans. And I think that's so important for a lot of white people to understand that it is normal to go through these feelings. However, don't get trapped in it, don't center it and understand that there is trauma and that there is a possibility of reconciliation and healing, but you have to know the genealogy of what it means to have even been racialized. And then, you know, we aren't just racial experiences. It's all intersectional, which is what my work really focuses on. And um, Kim, you know, we met at the keynote flea conference back in 2019 fall. And I had been asked to give the keynote talk and I purposely focused on a crowd of mostly white women I want you to really think about what does it mean to be racialized and gendered as a white woman or white girl in the United States? Do you understand the history of nation building? Do you understand what it means to be a white settler nation? We often learn in history books, if you went through the standard K through 12 public education, there's lots of images when we talk about nation building, it's usually white men as slave owners. And there is little talk about the roles that white women and girls play, whether they wanted to or not. We think about the movie, A Birth of a Nation. We think about Jim Crow, the violence of reconstruction, um, the backlash against it. And this concept of the protection of not just, you know, white man's land and property, but the protection of this concept of white women and girls as pure and innocent. 
So whether you like it or not, that narrative is so deeply ingrained in most white girls and women who spent most of their childhood being raised in the United States that most white women don't reflect on this. And when Amy Cooper, when this video came out with Amy Cooper having called the police and lied that this black man is doing this for that African-American man, Amy Cooper is along the line of a history of white women who kind of embody that white women's innocence and tears and kind of strategizing how to use that. And, you know, she knew exactly what she was doing. And I ask a lot of white women who I coach and work with, you know, a lot of you, especially the ones who consider themselves liberal, when that happened, they're pointing the finger at Amy Cooper, you know, like, I would never do that. And let's, let's be real. Actually, you probably have done it, but in different forms. You just don't recognize it. And we talk about the history of Emmett Till. We talk about that history of what happens um, when white women are in collusion with white supremacy in various ways. And um, just kind of doing that work and getting women to understand that. And I have a friend who, she's a white woman. She adopted a black son. And she noticed already very early the preschool to prison pipeline thing happening in the school that they were even attending. And he was, he was uh, I think he was either in the first or second grade at the time. And something happened. And it was unclear what exactly happened. However, a lot of the facts show that it was her son and a white child and the white child did not get in trouble. Um, there was the police were called. There was, it was, this, this kid was like either in the second or third grade. It was, the police it was were like called in second yes, grade. Yes. But this stuff was the thing. And my friend, like the way it would work is she's trying to talk to the school about it. They're mostly white organization led, and they did not understand what she was trying to explain. You know, that there's research for decades how black boys are, you know, they're just pathologized as soon as they're born. You know, there's yeah. this narrative. And, um, and, you know, black boys and girls are, they are punished far worse for either the same or not even doing anything as white children. And she tried to bring this up. And, you know, the way anti-racism solidarity would have looked like for most of these white parents, mothers, and an admin would have been to engage with that hurtful and dangerous history and to understand how that's even affecting this private school in most, one of the most liberal areas of, of San Francisco Bay. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know if I, and I kind of want to open it up more to, you know, you and I talking more about these reflections, but, you know, kind of turning it back on to you as we've, you know, developed this relationship as friends and, um, as colleagues, you know, what has, what has your process been like about this since, you know, the last six or seven months? Yeah. I mean, you, you have been such a help to me in, uh, in seeing, uh, problems that, that I was unaware unaware of and and then when I become aware it's it's bewildering to me that I wasn't aware before uh, and we, we've you and I have talked a lot about sort of strategic ignorance and uh, and so sometimes you have sort of a situation like Amy Cook, Cooper where she seems to know what she's doing and then you you really helped me through a situation where I was giving a talk and I made an offhanded comment about um, so somebody said to me that I was intimidating and, and I have never thought of myself as intimidating. And I, I think it was 
in that case, because I had this big job with a lot of people. So that was sort of, it was all of a sudden, it wasn't so much me who was intimidating, but my position was intimidating to people. And, and it had a silencing effect. So that was what I was trying to talk about. And I made, um, I made a, a, a racially unmindful offhanded comment that, uh, that I had mostly throughout my career struggled with being taken seriously. And that because I was small, blonde, and Southern, and, and I, I didn't understand the whole history of the way that I look has been weaponized against black people. Uh, and, and I should have, like, once you started to talk to me about it, I understood it. But, but I think that one of the things that was bewildering to me was that I didn't already know, like, I must have already known at some level. So, so talk to me about your experience on the other side of that conversation, because I really, I felt, uh, I felt so, uh, I felt loved by you, uh, even though what I was hearing was really, really painful to hear. Like, I, I definitely don't identify as a racist, but I had done this racist thing in the room. And then, mm -hmm. to go back to white fragility, like, I made it worse, because when somebody in the, in the audience told me how what I had said made her feel, she was, she was a tall black woman, I'm a short white woman, uh, I didn't, I knew I had done something wrong, but I didn't understand what exactly was wrong. And I was, um, I felt in addition to being wrong, I felt ignorant. And I sort of used the apology to brush past the moment when I should have dug into the moment, like the parents in the, in the, in the, in the school you're talking about, they should have inquired more and I didn't inquire more. So, so first of all, thank you for helping me open up that line of inquiry. But I, I, I would love to hear sort of what your side of that conversation was like, because it must have been hard. For, it's real work for you to explain this to me. It's like, why the hell don't you already know this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I've, I've come a long way in how I try to communicate these ideas. And, you know, if it had been 20 years ago, I just roll my eyes and not even talk to you. So, you know, because of the the trauma and fear and pain that I have had and the lack of uh, critical literacy skills to understand not just like the collective black experience around racialized violence, but not understanding the collective trauma and even um, the need for healing around what it means to be racialized as white and white women. So I was at a different level 20 years ago than I am now. So my response kind of came out, well, I think you really just didn't know at the conscious level, but let's kind of unpack this and give you a history that maybe you're not used to. And I'm going to share that with you, you know, as which is to really understand the stereotypes. If you have read or listened or watched about the stories and the testimonies of women of color, especially as they rise up in leadership positions and work, how they're, if they just have an opinion that is assertive and not necessarily agreeable to some white coworkers that immediately they're told that you, I, I feel intimidated by you or I, I feel, I, you know, I'm, I'm scared that you seem aggressive. And it's just kind of that, the angry black woman or brown woman syndrome um, that a lot of, not necessarily intentional, a lot of white, especially white women will have in response to that, what they feel is confrontation. 
Um, and I often ask many white women to also reflect again, were you somehow, what was the narrative you being taught when you grew up that whenever you say something or do something, you get attention first, you're central first, you're important first. And when someone questions that, and that someone happens to be someone who has historically been part of a marginalized community where they should be subjugated, you know, what happens when they do assertively disagree with you? So how, how does that play into that? Uh, my mother is a tall, black, strong woman. And I've heard so many of her stories when she was working. Um, she's retired now in customer service. And my mom does not take abuse. My mom is, is unconditionally lovingly, like, compassionate, but also will not let anyone get away with any type of ism. That's probably where I got <laughs> my uh, framing of, of life from. Um, however, I would just hear her stories of, you know, she'd say white women at work. It's so clear that they're using, you know, that history of white woman innocence when they disagree with me or they'll go to my supervisor and complain about something I did when in fact I didn't do anything wrong. And I know they wouldn't have done this if it were a white man who said that, but why? Because that white man, there's been that narrative that they're supposed to be in that position of power and assertion and share their opinion because that's what a leader is. Leader by default is usually a white man. And my mom hasn't worked in years, but you know, this is just her talking to me about those stories. And then me having similar experiences with a lot of white women just not understanding that. And earlier in my career, I was doing, I was actually a quality assurance engineer. I did a lot of tech work before actually going back to school for my PhD and being in spaces with not just white men, but sometimes white women where there, there would not be that understanding. And that, um, let me jump to a different section of my, my thought process. It doesn't just end up that people think we're angry or intimidating and that it's hard for white women like yourself to think about that. But I went to a Dartmouth alumni Silicon Valley networking event. Mm-hmm. And I was, I, I probably was one of three black people there. And there were a lot of us there. I'm a Dartmouth college alum. Yeah. And that's about five or six years ago. And I, I kept on, you know, showing my resume. And interestingly, the way my pedigree was interpreted was that I have a very intimidating resume. Like that oh was used gosh. several times. And the people were looking at it were white people, sometimes white women. And I didn't, it wasn't, but it was implied that I did not understand that because I guarantee I, I, my husband is a white man from Germany. I don't think I've ever heard anyone tell him, tell me any stories when he hands his resume or talks about his pedigree. He's like a, he's a Harvard PhD astrophysicist, data scientist. Yeah. Okay. Which for me, for anybody, like I just think that's intimidating <laughs> because we'll astrophysicists, no matter what your racial or gender background is, but you know, he's never shared that with me that that's, you know, we seem intimidated by that because it's expected, especially he's not just white. He's a white man from Germany and the narrative that Germans are, you know, so I'm trying to make these connections, but you know, the assumptions we have and the way you responded to the woman initially I would expect that response initially from most white women if you don't understand those histories, but also that you give credit that, you know, you, it's not like it's easy binary. You also are a shorter woman. Um, you also are a woman. 
So I can understand how you would think what the narratives behind what that means. Um, you know, why, why would someone not understand your perspective and all the things and stereotypes you've had to deal with? So I think when we talk about these things, it's not necessarily fair to give it the same weight, but I think it's important to understand all of that because I have plenty of blonde women friends who also say they're kind of sick of that stereotype of what it means to be a blonde woman. Yeah. yeah. You know, so, and what that, so I think there's just so, if we can just give ourselves multiple revisionist histories of understanding these different things and kind of understanding the whole story, um, it makes it easier to understand how to not to have initially reactive response on all sides and to understand those genealogies, understand those traumas, those fears, how you can gain a literacy to work through it and then use it as a tool for transformation. And I think yes. that's really important because the last thing you want to hear is that just the way you are or an ignorance has hurt a fellow human being. And I think a lot of people think that's corny, but when you think you're a good person and then someone tells you basically you hurt me, for most people, that doesn't feel good, but we don't have the tools on how to deal with it because we are such a punitive society, a discipline and punished society, where we've even internalized it to beat ourselves up when we do something that someone said is wrong. Between the internal stuff, the external stuff, there's almost no room to actually shift and use that experience as experience as an opportunity for all sides to grow and learn together. And I think yes. that's one of the things right now, at least in the United States, when we're talking about uh, racial power dynamics in that history, we're just not there yet in a way that certain nations, like I believe South Africa has like this race and reconciliation movement that they started after Mandela, yes. um, you know, was released and you know, the, the black majority took over the country. And that's something that the United States doesn't have yet. We're a very taboo culture when it talks to when we want to talk about things like trauma and all that stuff, that wishy-washy stuff, you know, it's just, I think that's the, that's the issue right now. So when you, you know, told me about what had happened, I had come from already knowing all of that already versus how I was 20 years ago, where I just rolled my eyes. So kind of caught in my own unrecognition of those traumas and those fears. And basically the fear of even, thinking that someone that I would perceive such as yourself, a blonde woman from a financially privileged background, why would I have compassion for her? Why would I want to understand her story? What is she going to teach me? What gift does she have for me? You know, so, um, so that's kind of what I thought about when you, that's what I was thinking in my own evolution what you were going through, um, and how we, we tend to respond to these situations. Well, thank you for giving me your understanding and your compassion because I, I learned a lot uh, from you and, uh, and, and hopefully what I can give you at the very least is not to make that mistake again uh, and, uh, and to teach other, other people. Uh, like I think one of, the, one of the things you told me recently when we were talking on the phone is that uh, you've, the, the emotional labor of hearing the stories from your friends who, who are black, who are experiencing these sort of racist things, even in this liberal community that we live and work in. And people are still, even now, even at this moment in time, refusing to hear. Uh, and so I think one of the, I love 
the the truth and reconciliation. Like we have to look at the truth. We have to look at what happens. And so one of the stories uh, that that you mentioned to me is somebody said that they got their badge got checked when they before 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 COVID when they were going into the lunch line. And I've heard this at a number of tech companies where. Uh, a, a black person will go to the cafeteria and their badge will routinely get checked. Whereas like I've worked in tech for 20 years and I've been, even when I don't work at the company, my badge doesn't get checked. Like I just go and get the food. Um, and, uh, and I think that the, one of the pro, I mean, you can jump in and clarify the story, but one of the, one of the things that I heard you tell me that was, it was, there's always this trauma and then the re-trauma. And I think the re-trauma is often worse than the trauma. And the re-trauma in this case was that the executives kind of brushed this off as though it were no big deal, as though they didn't understand the context. I mean, their, their attitude was, well, all you have to do is pull out your badge. What's the big deal? But the big deal is that, is that, Black people are being murdered by the police. Like, there's a broader context that they weren't connecting uh, the two things to. And then when somebody mentioned, um, I think it was George Floyd, but I can't remember who, they mentioned someone who had recently been killed, and the the executive said, I don't know who that is, which was also like, how could you? It It was unforgivable and sort of, but of course we must forgive, but it was inconceivable. Also, it was so hard to understand in this moment in time how you could not know um, these names. And, uh, and so I think that was even more traumatizing than having to pull out the badge was the response from the white executives. Yeah. And I think this is just, you know, this is just nothing new. So that's the thing, but it is repetitive. It's repetitive trauma, you know? And I think, you know, when you, when you're talking about this, I remember I, Trevon Martin had been murdered and I gave a lecture that kind of tied this all in at UC Davis. And one of the students who just happened to be a white man, and that's how I read him, he actually asked, who is Trayvon Martin? And I didn't, and I, I was just thinking, I, you know, and I didn't want to judge, but it was one of those moments where like, I don't want to judge. However, clearly I'm judging by my response. I don't know if they can tell the look on my face. So, you know, back to your um, narrative of this particular tech company and this black person's experience, you know, I'm not this person and I'm not the many white people who right now who are in leadership positions where, and I'm going to say it, uh, I am getting sick of the amount of anti-racism statements that I am seeing from companies that I know, I know a year ago, five years ago, when Ferguson was happening, when Trevon Martin was murdered, when Black Lives Matter came about, they did not care. They did not want to invest in it. And I am a little annoyed right now. I'm, I am getting so many emails from industry, you know, top companies making claims that seem more like cosmetic diversity. Yeah. So, you know, when people are saying they don't understand, or I don't know who, who's George Floyd, like, again, I'm not them, but I, I am a little wary of that statement as fact. Yeah. And I'm a little wary of, and is it because once again, 
this person represents um, many or millions of white people who, even if they have good intentions, they just don't have the tools on how to talk about it. Um, and then, you know, if I talk about it, well, I talk about it the wrong way. So maybe I just won't say anything. But when I hear various white leaders in industry or certain or nonprofits, if they just will say, you know what, who is George Floyd? Or, you know, I've never heard of this thing called systemic racism. It's new. And I don't know why so many white people are acting like they just fell from a tree. And I, and I'm like, I mean, we can get like kind of technical on the language of falling from a tree and like a tree right. that you fell from, uh, like a tree that is built or grew on indigenous land that was, you know, taken from indigenous people that was probably cut down and made into a house from the wealth of many of your ancestors who were, you know, invested in enslaved African labor, you know, living in that house that that tree built that you claim that you don't know that you fell from. I can't even go there. Yeah. And I'm just like, what is going on here? Like, you know, you did not fall from anything. I, I cannot believe that right now, but I'm not, you know, this collective population, I'm not in their brains, but that's where I kind of struggle with my own growth and really understanding this and still developing empathy and sympathy and understanding, but still saying, okay, you don't know this. You don't know who George Floyd is. You say you don't know what systemic racism is. So now you see all the flags going on. Something's up. It is your job not to point the finger and just say, we will not tolerate police brutality or people who engage in activity like Amy Cooper. Don't point the finger outward and say that you don't support this when over the past 10, 20, however years that structurally you have not actually done anti-racism. Yes. Also, you made a really good point in your talk, like Google it. This is knowable. <laughs> like all of these things. I mean, maybe you're not going to get the best resources if you Google it as you talk. Well, now about, I think there's better curated lists, but you're right. I mean, it's not just... You know, when I was saying that, but you were saying. No, I think it's important. It's important that that white people educate themselves and like get over. And take action. Like, so yes. you can read all the books in the world. And that's you the thing, you know, because they're like, we must have conversations and educate ourselves. Okay, that's great. And that's been happening for a long time, especially the conversations. But now make change. I don't mean like a, like a, let's have a day where we do cultural diversity. I'm talking structural changes and you're not going to understand how to make those structural changes until you understand the history, not the K through 12 history that most of you were taught. I'm talking about like the history of how this country was built and understanding the brutality of the plantation that actually is what has founded the way capitalism works now, which is contingent upon sexism and racism and other isms. Like you need to understand that and how that builds a lot of the ways people develop their business and their business life. And that's so important. And this isn't like me trying to shame anyone, but you're, it's so naturalized and normalized that people aren't even thinking about anti-racism beyond let's just have a day where we support Black Lives Matter. Let's have yes. a day where we... Um, you know, twice a year, our profits go to the local organization that is trying to put food on the tables of, you know, uh, Latinx communities that are struggling. Like, it, I think that's the point is the structural changes. And you're not going to know that if you don't know how, if you're like most industry leaders in your white, how you came to be 
as a white person and what that means. We know white is a, not a biological thing. It's a construct. We are in a caste system that is racial and it's a construct, white, black, first began and then they started making all of these other constructs of race. And you need to understand that. What does that mean? I'm a white racialized person and understand that history. And what I like is Arnold Farr's work. He's another, I believe he's either a sociologist or a philosopher. He's black. And he has this uh, amazing concept, which I think I've shared with you. It's, I don't like so much when white people will often say, well, I am racist. I am racist. You're right. I think that can be off putting to other white people who are not ready for that. But I like his concept of white racialized consciousness, no matter whether you're liberal, ultra conservative, that if you were born and raised in this culture in the United States, for the most part, or at least raised or spent most of your time here as a white person, your consciousness will be shaped along the lines of racist structures and institutions that are embedded in white supremacy, whether you know it or not. So that's what I have to ask for industry leaders as I am witnessing these letters and these statements, you know, do you understand the depths of how white racialized consciousness has gotten your company to the position it is right now where suddenly you're only issuing these statements now? And it wasn't part of your business model from jump. That's not judgment. That's just showing how the racialized experience is going to differ in this country. Um, because there are plenty of, when I look at a lot of uh, Black-owned businesses and their business model, because of those, that history that a lot of Black people have of being you know, descendants of the most disenfranchised because of white supremacy, the way they build their model reflects that, that racialized experience so it's not perfect all the time. There's a lot of businesses, black businesses that, that have other issues going on, like homophobia and transphobia, but I can talk about that later if that comes up. However, a lot of them are building knowing that already, that experience is that we have to have at least an anti-racist framing from jump. Yes. And that's, and, and then as the businesses grow and, you know, my father is, he had a black owned business. He ran a printing shop. So, you know, just listening to him, and how he practiced it and understood it. You know, that was my model. So, so what, were, what were the things your father did that we should also be doing? Oh, uh, this is, um, you know, just understanding. We would just have these conversations. And my mom, too, she didn't own a business, but she did work. Um, just the way that he would recognize uh, where we were growing up in New England, I remember the Puerto Rican population um, that lived next to us. Um, I lived in Lebanon. And um, Willimantic had a high number of Puerto Rican um, people living there. And I remember that he was saying that um, Puerto Ricans at the time, this was in the 80s, uh, had difficult time finding work and jobs that would help them with economic um, mobility or rising up because of the racism towards Puerto Ricans. And so he understood that. So, you know, he was in his business and hiring practices. He wanted to hire in a way where he can help folk understand um, that you're not trapped just because you've been um, racialized as Puerto Rican. I put that in quotations because the whole concept of race and racialization is kind of this, it's, it's changes all the time. So, uh, so, you know, you've been racialized as uh, these brown people and the white imagination as a problem to society. So, you know, hiring and under, you know, understanding how you hire in a way where um, you understand that that's a myth and that's a narrative that's made to kind of reinforce 
capitalism as a way to look at certain people as disposable and exploitable. So you can hire them and say, well, we're just going to give those people $5 an hour, barely making it um, because, you know, you can't trust them anyway and this and that. So, you know, just understanding when you hire and recruit and understanding your own potential biases and um, working in a way with your employees to listen to what their needs are, not you projecting what you think they should do. Um, and you know, I'm trying to save you or I'm trying to teach you this or that, but what, what, what are their needs? Listen to what they need. Listen to, you know, and understanding that history of being a minoritized racial community, but you know, my father's black, which they have, he has his own different stories, but, um, he's not Puerto Rican, but he is also able to understand and listen, you know? So just listening to that. And, um, I remember outside of that, one of his employees had a drug problem. And just being compassionate about it and really understanding that and working. So just the people he would hire um, often were not people that would normally be able to find work. But he understood the narrative of maybe you might come in and you might have this record or you might have this history that would normally not get you a job. But he, he's, he's looking at you more like, you know, you're a human being and we all have our stories and we all have our reasons. And, you know, how can I help you thrive? Yeah. You know, and he, you know, we were, I mean, it's not like he was like had a big company that made millions. He was a small, small business owner doing printing before he said the laser jets killed his business. But, um, so that's, you know, just listening to that and understanding that. And, um, I remember one of his employees who did have uh, issues with drugs off and on for years and helping her when I think something had happened and I had asked, I was too young to really understand what had happened, but she had, she had overdosed in her car and something had happened. And, um, but the, the compassion my dad had for her and just like trying to help and understanding why, why we, why people become addicted to things to begin with, to understand that United States itself creates a situation where addiction is kind of the norm to deal with a lot of things because a lot of people, it's just, you know, addiction itself is a very deep thing, but I was really too young to quite understand it, but he modeled that behavior. He didn't yeah. judge and, you know, you don't, and, you know, never judge a person until you've spent time in their shoes type of thing. Yes. Yeah. I don't know if that's helpful. And, and no, my, my, my father's very good at receiving feedback. Very, very good. You know, yeah. he was the atypical, not just as a business owner, but atypical father, a black man who, um, he, I mean, he and my mom raised us. My mom basically told my brother and I, if you ever bother or bully anybody for any reason, mm-hmm. I will kick your ass. I mean, that's, that was her framing. That was her. Right. She didn't like that. You know, you don't bother somebody because of their religion, because they're gay. Like, you know, like, so that's how my, both my parents were. And my dad, the way he framed things was, you know, I don't care who you fall in love with. So if you can understand that, we're all spirits having a human experience yes. and then it makes it much easier for you to understand humans a little better yes. versus that's a black person, that's a gay person, that's a Christian person. So that's how he tried. To, and it's hard because he also has his times where he'll just like, I can't understand this. This person's racist, idiot. You know, he'll, yeah. we all have those moments when we're talking about modeling, there's two things happen right now. How do I model my behavior as an anti-racist white person? And mm-hmm. a lot of parents are like, how can I be an anti-racist parent? Yes. It's basically the same thing. If you're yes. an anti-racist parent, you're probably an anti-racist business leader. If you're an anti-racist business leader, you're probably doing pretty well with anti-racist parenting. So it's not like they're separate. Yeah. So, you know, what my parents and my dad taught me, it also was in his business. Of course, things were not always perfect, but the capacity to do that and always receive 
feedback from his kids or people that work with him in a way where he was not like defensive was really, really important. Until this day, I thank my father for teaching me that and the ease of which I can actually point to him. I think he made a mistake here and him never have, I don't think he ever yelled at me or exploded or punished me for pointing out that he may actually be wrong. And when my, my brother decided to join cheerleading and play the flute, you know, a lot of men who raised boys would not like that. And my father was like, let me introduce you, introduce you to my favorite flautist, James Galway. And wow. then my brother in the fourth grade just picked up the flute. You know, he never put on how a boy should express his gender identity. Yeah, because as you say, it's not enough to read... Uh, to, to read how to be an anti-racist. You actually have to put the ideas into practice. Are there other things that we should be doing? Yeah, I, you know, I think what's important is to do together as a team and or individually is the internal work. Mm-hmm. And um, that can be in various ways. Uh, there is there's a book by Layla Syed, Mm-hmm. Me and white supremacy. And it's not just a book, it's a toolkit, it's exercises. Okay. But also, you know, the type of work I do is I hear these types of challenges and it's almost like, whoa, I didn't even, I didn't even realize that was coming, you know, cause I thought we had our good intentions. And it sounds like what is necessary is the group, your group needs probably first is critical race literacy skills to even understand like before even the employees or the people that were on the project are going to talk to you about this. You may just need to have literacy tools to even understand the meaning of those words and yes. narratives. So, um, you know, I personally, when I coach, I give trainings and try to unpack those meanings, those definitions so at least you know what is being presented to you, at least on a beginner level. Yeah. So, you know, someone may actually say, you know, my grievance with you is that, you know, you you weren't anti-racist, you were just an ally. And you, I don't know if many people are familiar with the controversy of using ally versus, you know, anti-racist. Yeah, um, or accomplice. People, How do you feel yeah. about the accomplice? Yeah, I just, I don't, I don't like ally or accomplice as much as where I've been using the phrase you know, when don't don't ask people of black, you know, black, indigenous, and people of color, how can we be white allies? That it's it's yeah. cringeworthy, yes. because it shows that even though you have good intentions, that word is not it doesn't engage in structural change. What and you would know this if you've had better literacy and training. How can I be anti-racist in action, nonstop as praxis? Right. So yeah. praxis. What does praxis mean? Yeah, I was gonna say that praxis is is theory plus practice. Got so it. it's how you, you what the like what ethics and theories drive you and move you to do what it is that you do throughout life. And mm-hmm. it's a term a lot of those terms are kind of used in academia, but I, I think it's important that it's it's action, strategy, and theory fused together. Yeah. Ally doesn't have that connotation. It just seems like when someone says, you know, okay, we've offended or we've insulted or hurt, you know, black and indigenous people of color, uh, let's, let's invite them to tell us how we can be better white allies. It's not just even the way the question is framed shows that you're not there yet. Yeah. It's sort of like, I've made a mess. Could you please come help me clean it up? Yeah. And I think, 
a lot of us black and indigenous people of color were asked to do this, or even when things are shared, you, you, you witness the grieving and sadness of that trauma of racial violence. Um, a lot of us call it racial violence porn, and we don't want to kind of be part of that theater in which, um, depending on the context and situation, we don't want to be there performing these grievances so certain white people can use it as a more wokeness badge. Yes. We don't know how that's going to be used. So it almost feels like we're performing for them in certain contexts. We're not sure if anything's really going to change, but the mere fact that white people, some can think, well, I sat through the testimony, I heard it with an open heart, and that's, you know, that's kind of enough. That's where we're trying to figure out how not to use black and indigenous people of color as kind of props. Yes. Um, and how do you engage in making changes as white people that could be part of, you know, mostly white-led orgs or industry, how do you not become part of a white savior complex industry when it comes to now, how am I going to do racial justice? It's very complex. There's a lot of, you know, moving parts, but, you know, inviting someone to ask that when you don't have certain things in place before can actually yield a lot of negative outcomes and damage. That's, that's how I would answer it. Um, I give trainings and I think training is just one of many things you need, but I'll give a comprehensive three part training, either a webinar or in person to my clients to start just getting them to understand what do we mean by anti-racism versus race neutral or non-racist? What do we mean by that in terms of structures, institutions, systems? What do we mean by the genealogy of how you came to be? So you know, just really understanding that and having exercises, examples. I do empathetic storytelling once I've explained all the theories, histories, and definitions so we can start going from brain to heart. And then, you know, actions and strategies around that. Um, so when I give those introductory workshops for my clients, almost all of them have told me that it was really helpful as they began to think about ways to communicate to at least in the concept of, you know, communities that are minoritized racial communities, um, how to even begin to frame and shift the paradigm of how they were thinking and the actions that they thought they needed to do, because a lot of it and the way they were going about it was still ensconced in white racialized consciousness, even with good intention. So, um, what you're asking is similar to what I've been asked. I've received several emails saying, you know, we've been told that we were racist in our actions or we upheld institutional racism. Would you like to be on a panel so, you know, you can tell us your grievances and your pain? And, you know, I, that didn't feel right to me. Something about that. Now, you know, and I'm still trying to name it and work through it so I can help my clients but it's it's icky I, I had another friend the fifth woman of color this week contact me saying similar you know she had received similar invitations we got an invitation from the our school board you know this Sunday we're gonna have a town hall and we'd like to invite you to talk about your experiences with racism and I just first of all the black people in the school system you know three percent of us we've been talking about it for a long time and there's been no action even after the thing that happened for those listening, you know, the Albany high school in California made the news because of, you know, um, uh, racialized violence through Instagram and pictures of, that happened a few years ago. And to be asked that after nothing was really actually done at the structural level, knowing when, uh, parents, the, the black parent advisory group and black engagement, you know, they, 
we're telling this is what you need to hire someone who literally yes. understands, like hire the person in this position yes. to do the work. Yeah, um, don't ask them to come and do the work for free. Yeah. Sure. So, so that's why I was thinking like, so we're going to give you, so what's going on here? I know this is the good intention, but once again, yeah. you're framing this around assumptions on how you're supposed to go about this, but it's from a white racialized consciousness. A lot of it is the white savior complex. So there's a lot to unpack and understand before you even issue a statement, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. I, and I know that's a lot, that's a lot, that's not a lot of what a lot of white industry leaders want to hear right now. Yeah. However, that's what they need to hear. They you know, that's great that if you're literally determined to make change and not just do it because everyone else is doing it and ask yourself, I ask these leaders, where were you, where were you before this, you know, does it take the, an apocalypse, you know, yeah. for, for you to even issue a statement or say this and ask yourself when this came up, when, um, Alicia Garza and her colleagues started black lives matter, mm -hmm. what was the sentiment at work from mostly white people? If uh, you're at an organization or business where it's mostly white, what did people say? Were there people there who said, we don't want to get political Were there people saying, you know, you know, we kind of support all lives matter. You need to ask yourself, why does it take COVID-19, which yeah. is virus, right? a real virus to expose the virus of systemic racism over the past 500 years. Why does it take a pandemic and all this, all this stuff for you to at least quote unquote bravely and courageously just issue a statement. And I think that's so important. And I'm not, this isn't judging. This is doing the internal work. You know, I like when people are up front and say, you know what? I, I, and I've had people say that I'm just invested in my privilege. That's why I wasn't, I'm invested in it. And I don't know if I really want to divest in, in whiteness or, you know, or is it people, there are people who are like, I just didn't know. They, they just didn't know, or it was fear. I don't know how to do it. We tried it in the past. I was accused of being racist when I tried to do it. There's just so much, but that's what I need folk to, to, to answer that right now. What is your intention? And do you understand what it means to embark on this structurally as a company or an organization, but also to do the work internally and do the genealogy of how your consciousness and the decisions that drive it came to be as a racialized gendered subject in the United States? And why were we not aware of this? It was there. It has been there. This is the question I'm wrestling with. How could I not have been more aware earlier? Yeah. So Breeze, a lot of people, well, a lot of people, our team is five people, but they're all sending a chat saying, could we please hire you to come do this work with us? Uh, so, so we would like to hire you and we will also, we would like our listeners to hire you as well because the depth of your thinking and the depth of your compassion and your willingness not to pull your punches are all too rare in this world and really valuable. Well, thank you, Kim. And I accept the invitation to just do this work together. Like that's what I mean it when I say, you know, unconditional love and compassion and doing this work together as human beings. You know, we all have our traumas and suffering and struggles. Um, and just to kind of work together. And as you would say, I like, I like the, you know, just how you, how you are radically candid. How can we be radically candid and loving um, about the work that we need to do? Because that is what true leadership should be about. I can't think of a better note to end on. Thank you so much for your leadership, Breeze. 
You're welcome. And, you know, thank you for being an anti-racist in action nonstop since, you know, we've met um, about seven months ago and really doing that work. I, I, I've witnessed it and it's just something that it, yeah, it's just been an amazing collaboration and experience for myself as well to work with you. Well, thank you. I feel that we're on the path to healing thanks to you. So thank you. Thank you. So Breeze, where can people find you who, who know that they need your help working through these yeah. issues? Uh, you can go to, I have two pages. So my first page is abreezeharper.com and it will give you a taste of how I think through my publications and my books. Uh, I have two books and a third in process. Uh, and I highly, you know, suggest that you check out my book Scars, which is a novel, but it's based on all the stuff I'm talking about and about two likely unlikely people who kind of meet up and become friends and work through the trauma of systemic racism together. Um, that's called Scars, a black lesbian experience in rural white New England. So it's very intersectional. And then my business website, my consulting business is called Critical Diversity Solutions. And it's www.criticaldiversitysolutions.com. And it was founded by myself and my co-partner, Elise Aimer, where um, she lives in Toronto. So we have two sites in Toronto and in San Francisco Bay Area. However, we do our work throughout the North American continent and we do online services. And once COVID-19 um, is managed and, and uh, disappears, fingers crossed, um, we will also be continuing our work flying out to physical locations as well um, if needed. So thank you. And thank you, Kim, and your team for just having me on this wonderful podcast. And I can't wait you know, to engage in conversation over the next few installments of this much needed and timely series. Thank you so much, Braze, for joining us and for the work you do. You're welcome. Thanks for joining us. Our podcast features Radical Candor co-founders Kim Scott and Jason Rosoff, is produced by our director of content, Brandy Neal, and hosted by me, Amy Sandler. Music is by Cliff Goldmacher. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Candor and find us online at RadicalCandor.com. We'll see you soon.